I slept my way to the top and I'm very proud of it. Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to episode 35 of Fratello on Air with me, your host, Rob Nuds, calling in from Dresden. I'm on the line with my good friend, James Thompson, all the way up north in Gothenburg, Sweden. How are you, buddy? I am exceptionally cold today. Thank you for asking. <clears throat> That's good to hear. That's good to hear. I'm glad I'm not alone today. In fact, in Dresden, it is a balmy nine degrees, would you believe? We have Siberian winters forecast for Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday of all Sundays. And I am not looking forward to the weather, but I am looking forward to the game. Are you a football fan, James? I know you hail from Canada originally, but uh, do you follow American football as well as Canadian? I do. I actually, I actually played for several years all through, all through high school. And what position did you play? Uh, this is the funny part. I went to a, a really pretentious little, little high school in the pretentious little part of Vancouver I grew up in. Um, nobody wanted to play football because they didn't want to get their hands dirty um, or they didn't want to get hurt. So I think our senior team, we had about 14 or 15 players on the team in total. I think you're allowed to have like 11 on the field at one time. So everybody played offense and defense. So I was a tailback on offense and a, the hell was I? Like I was a linebacker sometimes on defense. We got the crap kicked out of us every single game. Well, it builds character. In my freshman year, as we would say, I was on a, a wonderful football team. We went uh, 0-8 and for the entire season, although we didn't win varsity. So that was something at least. We, uh, we took went down the local my rival. senior year. Well, you know, I knew we had a lot in common, but being on terrible football teams was not one of the things I predicted. My father actually um, played loads and loads and loads of, of, of football when he was in university in the 60s and was one of the top players in, in the country. And he was actually drafted to play in the CFL, uh, which is the oh, Canadian version. Who did he play for? Did he? Did, Argonauts? Rough he, Riders? He drafted for the Argos, yeah, but he, he decided not to play and he went to engineering school instead. Wow, he could have been a multiple Grey Cup champion uh, had he had he taken a different. I tell you, it would have just been just broads everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, our failed sports careers aside, uh, we've we've since gone on to find I don't know something resembling uh, a home in the in the watchmaking industry, and yours is squirreled away, as we mentioned, right up <clears throat> in the northernmost reaches of uh, the European continent in in a rather attractive country that I'm sure a lot of people would love to live in themselves. And you actually spend most of your time in a very interesting workshop, do you not? Tell us a little bit about where you are today. I do, yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm in Gothenburg, Sweden, uh, on the on the west coast, quite quite far south as the country goes. I mean, if you think Stockholm uh, is maybe one quarter of the way up, and I don't think I've ever been north of Stockholm in the 18 or 19 years that I've lived here because it gets hella cold. Unless you're being chased by the KGB or something, there's really no reason to go up there. It's a really niche region to be, to go to northern Sweden. I mean, that this is 2021. I think there's more likely to be chased by a different adversary than the KGB, right? <laughs> Unless you've got some weird dealings that I do not know about. Totally. No, actually, I've got two really good friends from design school, uh, Calais and Christian, that, that go up every, not every winter, but many winters, up to a, a little village about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle with a very cool name, Yukasieri, and that is where they build the annual ice hotel. 
So these oh, guys wow. go up there with the big, you know, Husqvarna and the chainsaws, and you cut out huge three-ton blocks of crystal clear ice out of the Shawn River, not Shawn River, out of a river, and and they actually design, they they submit these proposals for their you know, with their sketches and such, and then they actually spend it's got to be at least a month or so up there, carving carving through that solid ice, and the fucking sun never comes up. They'll be out <laughs> in full darkness for like four weeks. Good grief. That does sound like uh, one heck of an experience, though. Um, I'm not sure I'd like to do it every single winter, but I, I certainly would be fascinated to try that out sometime. I would love to see it because um, uh, Christian is actually is, is a spectacular photographer. So he goes out there in the middle of the night when it's minus 30-something um, and, and gets all these uh, time-lapse pictures of the Norquin, the uh, Northern Lights up there oh i'm so jealous i am very jealous um but that's it's fascinating you know you know these people from design school and they've obviously got different talents um as well photography and ice hotel crafting which is niche <laughs> but definitely a necessary skill to have um, especially 200 miles north of the arctic circle yeah. what i'm interested in though is how did you get from that crowd and that kind of beginning uh to find yourself in watchmaking Oh Jesus! Uh, I I would almost say I am the design equivalent of, <clears throat> say, Forrest Gump. Um, you just kind of you know accidentally stumble through the wrong door and kind of end up in some interesting, fantastic place. Um, I'm not really here by my own devices. Uh, it, it's just a case of sitting next to an interesting person at a dinner or in an airplane or something. And someone gives you a business card and then I see, I see. So, I mean, I'm, I got in, I got into watches through my jewelry design, um, all the way through design school, going back to when I was really first starting at design school in, in Vancouver, where I'm from. Um, I can't sketch. I, I am absolutely pitiful at sketching in 3d and perspective and all these things that designers are supposed to be able to do. I can't do it. Um, so I always got much more into model making. Um, so as a result, I was always in the model studios and the machine shops and such at design school. And I would just start making little, little titanium ring for my brother for Christmas, you know, when I was first over here and such. And I did it enough that I started getting kind of good at it. And then the materials that used to be really cutting edge and exotic become a little pedestrian, the more they sort of permeate all the different uh, products out there. So Things like titanium and carbon fiber, really where I got my start. I mean, carbon fiber is is plywood's sexy sister. It's not especially high tech. Titanium is the biggest thing of 1967. Like, yeah. But they have this really neat kind of aura of NASA awesomeness about them. Most of my early design work, I would say I was much more interested in the materials than just sitting down and sketching a really cool, exciting shape. So you really are like um, a, a modern day, a very hyper modern sculptor more than anything. You you get your inspiration from the the material you're working with directly, rather than perhaps the other way around. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is almost a bit of a problem in modern design education that everybody jumps straight into the CAD CAM projects. They jump straight into the Fusion 360 and Alias and SolidWorks and Rhino, and you can just make these spectacular renderings of like a carton of milk or something like who cares mm -hmm. you can make anything look awesome and i was always much more interested in 
the actual physical manufacture of stuff and actually making something with your hands that really stops somebody in their tracks. When you started experimenting with these materials, when did you realize that you were onto something that could really like become your, not just career, but your passion and your lifelong uh, adventure as it were? I don't know. Have I, have I reached that yet? Have I found that thing yet? Or have I found it three or four times? That's what I'm really sort of coming to realize these days is, you know, when I first started, I was the titanium guy with the rings and I was the carbon guy and, you know, okay, I'm the, the loom guy. Well, I'm, I'm working more with Fordite than probably anybody else on the planet these days with different watches and rings and all this kind of stuff. So we recently, uh, we recently touched on what Fordite is uh, on Fratello in, a, in an interview that you and I had together a couple of months ago now, I suppose. Yes. But for anyone that hasn't read that, um, firstly, what the heck are you doing? Go and read it. Yes. Secondly, uh, could you tell us, James, what is Fordite and why is it so cool? Fordite is the, the blanket term for the, the buildup of paint that happens in industrial car factories. So if you think of the giant American Michigan sort of car plants, you know, Detroit's and all these kinds of places, um, they have these giant paint bays where you're, you're painting, you know, several hundred cars a day. And it's not like one dude stands there and holds the door of the car and somebody else, you know, throws a brush at it. It, it, it it's a fairly automated process because they're just doing huge numbers. So every door and every hood, every piece of bodywork, they're all mounted on jigs. And these jigs go through the semi-automated process. And then they go through the hardening ovens and the kilns and some kind of maybe UV cooking, what have you. So the actual door probably gets two or three coats and then it's done. The mounting hardware that the doors are on probably go through five or six, seven, eight hundred times over the course of, you know, say a month or so. And then all the overspray builds up and builds up and builds up. So say one small regular size bolt ends up the size of a peach because it's just got this sort of geological growth that comes on it. And you need to eventually chip these, these ugly lumpy chunks of crap off just as part of routine maintenance. Cause then, you know, things won't fit in the tracks as they're supposed to. And at some point, some intelligent person, when they were cracking this off said, Holy crap, this stuff's really nice. Because if you cut it in half, you've got the most unbelievable, perfect linear formations of hundreds of layers of car paint. And if you look at it under a microscope, you can see you've got primer, color, top coat, primer, color, top coat, pearl. And it's all completely random. It just has to do with what cars were being painted at that time. So once you've painted, I don't know, a thousand cars these big tree bark looking scabs of crap and that's a technical term scabs of crap are are an inch thick so some it's amazing person you know just started stockpiling all this stuff they used to just throw it in the garbage and the stuff that i'm using is from from the ford plants from about the 1970s to 1990s era because at that point um the, the chemical makeup of the car paint was much different from what it is today. It was rock hard, lots of solvents. And especially once it's gone through the oven so many times, it, it is like a stone. I did something similar with McLaren 
in England over the last couple of years, basically trying to do that same kind of idea. Problem is supercar paint these days is water-based. It's lighter, it's more flexible, and it's a little greener for the environment. So that's great for the cars, great for the earth. It sucks for Jimmy T because the paint stays really soft. So you can't really do anything with it. Well, I'm sorry to hear that it sucks for Jimmy T. I hate it when anything sucks for Jimmy T. We we need a movement where people buy t-shirts with this, don't make it suck for Jimmy T. That would that would be really, really cool. I think we could probably get that flooded through the watch industry easily enough. And we could encourage McLaren and other supercar manufacturers to stop being so environmentally conscious. You know, for goodness sake, what are they thinking? Ruining the possibility of future art. It is selfish. It's selfish. It's very selfish. Yeah, it's it's short sighted and um so, okay, so what if so what if it's saving the earth? You know, what's what's the point in having an earth without art? What's the point in having an earth without Fordite? And uh, because because the, uh, the the painters of old chucked this stuff, um, what was it, the technical term? Scabs of crap, you said? Scab, scabs of crap, I think, was the romantic terminology that I coined here. It is incredibly romantic. It's a shame that these um, invaluable scabs of crap, um, these fascinating geological lumps of... Uh, of, of paints gone by were just chucked in the, in the trash. But uh, thank goodness you found a way to turn them into something beautiful. And if, if uh, any of our listeners haven't seen Fordite in its, in its raw state or in its manufactured state, in its finished state, um, check out my Instagram at Black Badger. Cause that's got all, you know, it's got all the finished products, but also it's more of the behind the scenes, you know, sort of showing in the workshop and I've just cut the end of my finger off and I'm bleeding all over a watch or some kind of stuff like that. That's always nice to see. So we've, uh, we've also got this, these four dike dials are now showing in tag Hoya Carrera models, correct? It's with the intrepid George Bamford. That's a, it's an interesting three-way collab. Um, certainly, certainly my favorite Carrera ever. I just find it amazing, this stuff. I really do. I, I think <laughs> the thing that upsets me about it is that I always want to know what's next. I always want to see, you know, it must be so bewitching for you to be working on this material and with every like pass of a sander, or I, I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how you do it, but with every single micron you remove, you reveal an entirely new um, face to the world. Yeah. It's hard to stop, right? It must be it hard is, to stop. It is infuriating because you need to come to terms with the fact that there is nothing at all you can do to control what it's going to be like. So I could try and be all cool and say, Oh, it's like visual jazz, man. No, it just means I end up throwing a lot of tools around in my studio and swearing a lot because for instance, when we were working on some of these Bamford four die dials for the, the, the tag you were just speaking of, there were a couple instances where I, I, I had made a little small jig to hold the base plate and we'd attach the Fordite on this. I needed to sand it down to a very specific um, thickness or the watch would explode and, you know, smoke and flames. So as I was going down, I was getting, and, and it's all by hand. I got this little small kind of hockey puck looking uh, mounting jig for when I'm sanding the dials and I'm going down and down, I'm going through all these layers. And every time I would dip the thing under the tap to rinse off all, all the sort of Fordite dust and paste that's coming off, I would just get these spectacular little eureka moments of, of color and pattern and just like these fantastic Vasily Kandinsky sort of style paintings that would come out. And I would just stop and go, oh my God, that's, this is literally 
the most beautiful thing I've ever been a part of. And then I measure it and I'm like, nope, half a millimeter more has to come off. And you do one, two, three, and it's gone. And then some other colors come out. What is white is now green. What is blue? And if you've got something, say, the size of a grain of sand at the bottom of an inch thick piece, by the time you get to the top of that, it, that one little bit has now caused all these ripples and color striations, very much like that uh, the princess and the pea story, you know, how you can feel the pea under sort of 25 mattresses and all this kind of thing. So, so it's really about discovery, and it is the most infuriating thing you will ever encounter. Because somebody buys one of the watches and says, oh, I want one that's got blue with some yellow next to it, then a bit of green. And I'm like, oh, crap. There, there's just, there's no chance. There's no chance. Yeah, these things can't be, uh, can't be made to order in that regard, that's for sure. It's, it's a fascinating pursuit. It really is. And I know I'm guilty of getting a little bit flowery and a little bit, uh, what's the word, um, romantic when it comes to watches and art and the connection between the two. But, I mean, have you ever seen something like this in watchmaking where such an industrial process has been turned on its head and from it we've been gifted with such a ephemeral insight into the beauty that otherwise would have remained completely hidden from view. I had this conversation with George Stanford so many times while we were coming up with this. And it was this was the first time, I would almost say, of anything that I've done in the watch industry that felt like art. Not not design, but that actually felt like art. That I was just discovering something and it was just color and it was beautiful and it was just lovely. Now, is there more value in your mind to a project like this, say, than the technical mastery of a material? If, you know, your loom is particularly famous. We all know the Badger loom is the best, brightest, most extravagant loom uh, in the industry. But that, that took some serious scientific processes, right? You worked closely with the creators of Superluminova to create your own custom resin. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm always kind of playing defensive on that because I, I don't want to be claiming excellence for somebody else's work. So, so I work literally in direct daily contact with Superluminova in Switzerland. Um, all, all the Badgerite family of materials, I would say, everything is directly powered by Swiss Superluminova, 100%. I don't use any other material. I used to. Now I'm, I'm, I'm definitely sort of on board with this. And what's really fun about this is there's quite a bit of back and forth with it. So they let me essentially open up the recipe books and just kind of start pulling strings a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, this is really cool because this, like if you think back to, God, it's got to be almost two years ago now, uh, the David Toon, the David Toon DB28 Grand Bleu. What, what we actually did with that was David Toon and myself had this design mandate where traditionally loom materials going back even you know, 30, 40, 50 years aren't especially beautiful when they're not glowing. So at night, they're spectacular, all the colors of the rainbow. But during the day, they look a bit crap, don't they? Mm-hmm. You, you tolerate them because you know that it's, it's super luminova. It's, you know, tritium and all these kinds of different ancestral things. But you don't really get excited about those colors. 
so a lot of the early projects that I did, whether it was with Schofield watches or MBNF, of course, or even the work with um, the Prince of Darkness himself, Mr. Stepan Sarpaneva, what we had to do was almost kind of hide the material a bit. You could sort of show little bits of it. Um, Stepan and I actually were originally going to do just like a full, a full solid loom dial. It was too much. It's only started to really look interesting when you started to interrupt that light by putting sort of mesh and sort of upper dials and that kind of structures over it. The daytime color just wasn't really that great. So with the Debatoon work, we actually specifically engineered a new loom material from the kiln, from the base chemical level upwards. So the daytime color, we wanted to match that really iconic Debatoon thermally oxidized titanium blue, which is just one of the most beautiful colors in the industry. That part was easy. That was just getting a specific Pantone code and applying that to the loom material. What was really difficult was getting that material to glow, to emit that specific color. That's not as easy because you're not just talking about putting a bit of food coloring in something or, you know, mixing a bit of paint to actually augment the emitted light from a material is hysterically difficult. So this was, <laughs> a, this was proper friggin' Mythbusters. She blinded me with science kind of work here. Um, so what we actually ended up doing was we in parallel developed two different loom materials, one that emitted ultramarine color and one that emitted uh, a brand new violet color and then actually mixed them together. And this was apparently the first time this had ever been done in the watch industry uh, of actually combining two different colors of emitted light to get a desired final tone. And this became what we call Debatoon Blue Moon. Blue Moon Loom, because all their pieces and all their watches have a bit of a, a music uh, nomenclature to them, which I actually had no idea about. So there's it's been a long time. Been a long time since I've really uh, appreciated that. But yeah, it does ring a bell going back, going back a few years. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Been a while. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while. Slow rollout with that one. But what a result! And uh, that must have been incredibly satisfying, not just to be involved in the the whole process, but to see to see it come to life eventually. Which which did you find more satisfying though, working with the Fordite or working on? Um, you know, such a technical project as the creation of a new loom. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to say the Fordite um, because that was just such a, I was just giggling the whole time when I was doing it. When we were doing some of the design work with, with MBNF on the, what would become the HMX black badger, I was just nervous and sweating the whole time. I'm like, Oh shit, no one's going to like this. Oh, Max is going to find out that I'm a big idiot and I'm going to die porn alone. And it was, there was just crippling self doubt in this. And I think because I was just feeling the weight of the brand, mm, mm. you know, I mean, if, if you go up on stage after Frank Sinatra, you're going to be sweating. And if you're not, you should be. Um, whereas, whereas with this Bamford Fortnite project, it was just kind of a, I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear in your show, but it was like, oh, just fuck it. See what happens. And if it doesn't work, well, we'll go figure something else out. But from an, from an artistic perspective, that was just awesome. That was so much fun. And, and 
I, I would say that probably gets the best response from people outside of the watch industry. Well, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's instantly, um, communicable, shall we say, um, whether that's a word like or not. because of all the crazy colors, they look at it and go, well, how the hell did you paint that? What kind of brush did you use? <laughs> and then you explain yeah. to them what the fluoride is. And they're like, you literally just picked up this crappy little lump and sawed it in half. And I say, yes, sir. You know, there's like, it's, it's maybe a bit far to go, but Hey, screw it. This is, this is the industry in which we live. This is, this is art and whatnot. It, it's, it's a metaphor, isn't it? There's, there's philosophy in this, Ah, in this expression of you know this beauty within you know the hidden beauty in the world around us like my dad's a geologist funnily enough and oh, yeah. um, he, he he actually likes these fordite watches for the same reason he's like oh, it's like all the layers of earth and the uh, all the history of mankind and uh, the, the dinosaurs and blah 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 i'm like yeah that's yeah it's, it's just wow, it, it, it sounds like your dad should be doing voiceover work for like national geographic or something he doesn't sound a thing like that like whenever i did whenever i did coming home to roost yeah i kind of wish my dad did sound like that but um you know, um, he's he's still with us, thankfully. Yeah, but when he goes, yeah. The, the yeah, the legend that will extend of of Doctor John Nuds will be um, will definitely be one more akin to David Attenborough's than than the than the real absolutely himself. No, he's got a very he's got a very flat accent, my dad. Very nice, very easy to understand. But um, yeah, not not quite <laughs> the gravitas that I give him when I when I talk about his stories. But he loves it. This he understands it. This discovery of him was so much fun because it was all handwork as well. There there was no CNC work done on these dials because the material itself is so delicate that you, it would have just blown apart the layers because let's be honest, it's 40 year old waste. (laughs) You had to really, you know, like 2000 grit sandpaper and water and isopropyl and just polishing and just waiting to see what's going to happen. So that gave you a lot of time to let your mind wander. And I was just getting stupidly poetic about this. I I would almost say you could consider it 4D art because there is the element of time in it. These are layers that were put down by human achievement. Some dude, some woman, some person standing in a factory painting a car door. That's where this came from. And then that car was bought and somebody, how long do you keep a car for? 10, 15, 20 years, that car took the kids to soccer practice, maybe drove somebody to their wedding, did the daily groceries, blah, blah. It went out and had a life. And Mm. every single stripe in these rings, and there can be hundreds and hundreds of stripes on any dial or any ring, every single stripe was something. And for me, that is so much more satisfying than friggin' guillage, Côte de Genève. (laughs) You know, I just... I appreciate the art of that stuff, but it's just nothing that really gets me going. It is very exciting stuff. And yeah, the fact that every piece, you know, the word, probably the most overused word, overused word in the watch industry is unique, um, but it really does apply to everything that we see. I think see. the most overused word in the watch industry is Maison, but that's just me. It's, well, Maison, if it was used once, it would be overused too, too often. But, um, yeah. Uh, Icon and unique stand uh, stand atop the list for me, and in my opinion and estimation, the Fordite dials really are iconic, and they are each one of them unique, and that's quite satisfying. I think I look forward to seeing further applications of this material. I love it in your rings. I think it works really, really nicely. Um, 
I also like how, how sometimes you use it on the inside of a ring, which is kind of like a nice little secret treat for the wearer, uh, something to take off and marvel at, you know, because your rings themselves, they tell a story, uh, 3D, 3D art uh, in themselves. And uh, yeah, great stuff. Really well, good stuff. Depending on how the material was built up, you get just completely different results. So sometimes it actually, this Fortnite, the way it drips and forms, it does actually look like a big rough, say, piece of like oak tree bark. So when you cut that in half, right, along the cross section, you're going to have all these crazy undulations and nodes and all this kind of stuff. So that's just awesome. When you make a ring or a dial out of that, you're going to get a very crazy psychedelic, my TV's broken kind of aesthetic. There's also some instances where maybe if it's applied in a more static location, the lines are just straight, dead flat. Now, when you cut that on the cross section, that's what I've been using in my rings quite a bit lately. You get this Paul Smith, really oh, yeah. iconic Paul Smith, just, just lines, just crap loads of lines. And they're all obviously parallel because none of these lines can cross over because they're physical buildup deposits. So you can get completely different effects from something that's quite pinstriped and subtle to something that is, you know, one martini too many. <laughs> just just by what the material tells you that it wants to do. And that is, I don't know if I would call that art because I'm not, to be honest, I'm not doing a lot. I'm just reacting to what the material wants. If you have good ingredients, you have to be really thick to screw it up. And a lot of times I think the chefs will tell you they're just trying to stay out of the way. I mean, there are many ways to, to make art aren't there? I mean, there are some people that have great technical skill when it comes to painting. There are some people that can sculpt, uh, some people that are just, uh, great concept artists, um, wonderful installation artists. Sometimes the material discovering the, the material and developing the processes is the art, um, or the result of those things is. So I think you can call yourself an artist now if you want to, you might not want to be so, you know, <laughs> floofy <laughs> doesn't really suit the the rugged beard and the plaid shirt but yeah oh, well, you know, whatever no every time i refer to myself as an artist i can just feel my parents rolling their eyes so <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. parents always do that i think what? What? standard yeah. so tell me this tell me this right so you, you, obviously you have like a very wide and varied career and a lot of interests in materials and uh and your artistic pursuits um as ridiculous as your parents might find them or otherwise <laughs> um but tell me this what do you do when you're not doing all the stuff we know you for what do you mess around with what kind of things do you build and play with what are your interests uh boy the biggest build that's going on right now is actually the the full uh, the full production and development of, of two small humans. Oh, good grief. Yeah. Good grief. That's serious it's business. Still very much in prototyping, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish that I had some really cool pet project, you know, like it, when I see people talking to like uh, Neil Ferrer from Discommon, you know, he's building all these cool vintage race cars in his garage and all these like just really cool manly things. I'm like, I close the door to the studio. I go home. I pick up the kids from school, and and I'm making chicken fingers and you know co-watching Paw Patrol. Uh, the kids are one and a half and four and a half, and you know I'm I don't especially want to be one of those dads that just dumps 100 percent of the parenting work on on the other one, on the mother or whoever that would be. So it just you know I'm I'm absolutely happy to do it, 
Alfie, uh, my son, actually is just starting to take an interest in watches. Oh, really? He tends to like the MBNF, which just makes me sweat. Uh, he doesn't yeah. show a lot of interest in the G-Shock, which I'm really, really, really trying to push on him just for you know insurance reasons. But uh, no, it, it, it's just it's just fun, you know. He, I I made him a glow ring uh, a few months ago just to sort of play around with because his favorite character in some cartoon has this glowing rings. I made him one of these. And, you know, I'm also learning the error of my ways because when you're trying to put a small child to bed at night and they've got this really fun, bright green glowing super luminova ring on, it makes it effing impossible to get the kid to go to sleep. <laughs> and I can just hear my wife cackling in the hallway. <laughs> so yeah. serves you right, Jimmy T. It serves you right. I don't know why your wife wow. is like some who, hit. Who are these people you're doing impressions of? I don't know. I, I I don't know. It's Dave David Attenborough and some like uh, Attenborough and like the Wicked Witch of the West or something. I, they're the only two. Only the, the biggest influences of my childhood, obviously, just stuck with me. Uh, my mother Very doesn't sound show like just waiting to happen. David Attenborough and the Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah, well, yeah, that would be one heck of an Instagram account, that's for sure. Um, this kid, though, Alfie, man, he's going to be the coolest kid in the playground if he turns up rocking some super luminous ring and an MBNF, you know, like show and tell. What have you got today, Alfie? Like, well, let me tell you what I've got today, miss. Today I've got yellow cake uranium. Oh, great. <laughs> Nobody sit next to Alfie. Yeah. His dad's giving him radioactive materials again. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, of course, every parent says it's the best thing that ever happened to them. But holy crap, they're just spectacular. Yeah, uh, I'd like to actually start a podcast where I get like regretful parents on the show. Like um, that would be interesting. Just to be like, man, it was the worst thing I ever did. This kid, honestly, he's a terror. He's uh, yeah, <laughs> he's a devil. First thing I ever did was I we got him a book about dinosaurs. You know, little four year olds are supposed to like dinosaurs. Now it's like wakes up at, you know, 10 to six in the morning. And before his feet even hit the ground, he's in, he's in T-Rex mode, just, just stomping and roaring. And it, it used That's to be, cute. It used to be cute. Now it's like, mm, need a little Irish in this coffee this morning. Yeah. Well, that's, that's solid 2021 parenting in my book. Oh, uh, I don't have children. I don't have children, but um, yeah, I, I wholly agree. It seems logical to me from afar, you know, having never had to look after a child, that getting them blind drunk um, is probably the smartest way to be able to coerce them into doing what you want. I don't know. Maybe some, you know, childcare professionals might want to phone into the show and correct me on that. But, you know, observationally speaking, that seems like the logical course of action. So I'm all for it. So uh, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> I have that effect on parents. Yeah, um, I'm gonna have a divorce lawyer calling me in the next ten minutes here, so I should make sure my phone lines are open. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. For for any concerned parents or authority figures listening to the podcast, this is all in good humor. Alfie has never tasted alcohol, uh, nor will he until he is 21 years old, just to be on the safe side of of most laws we're aware of. Um, well, and he only drinks when he smokes. Yeah, and that's you know that's fine. That's 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 my philosophy for sure. For sure, how's that fifteen a day habit working out for him? Oh, good. good. He coughs a lot. The good thing about it though is because smoking supposedly stunts one's growth. You save a lot of money on on clothes because you can always buy kids stuff, and also um, it's probably good for the environment long term because you use less material. Right there, you go. No, actually, uh, he's he's going to be ridiculously tall. 
I don't know if it's my my wife's superior Swedish Viking DNA or something, and not my. It's definitely that, mate. Scummy uh, Irish potato farmer DNA that I have in my in my blood, but no, he's God. He's got feet like a sea otter. This kid's gonna be like eleven feet tall. Eleven feet tall. Um, okay, it's ambitious, but it's good to set our targets high, I suppose. Okay. Um, yeah, how big, how, how big is he now? Is he is he past your waist? I guess he must be if he's, if he's yeah. Uh, yeah yeah. And yeah. actually, as soon as we told our family and any of our friends back in Canada that we were going to be having a kid five or six years ago, um, every every single person from my family in Canada just went Swedish mother, Canadian father. This kid's got to play hockey. He's yeah, he's hockey player. Not even playing hockey. Hockey, 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 all the way. I you got your favorite hockey team? Are you a Canucks fan? I am because I'm supposed to be, but I actually grew up in Calgary, which is like right. you know, like the Canadian mecca for hockey. That's but, the Flames, right? Yes, sir. But I was I was literally the only person in my school that didn't play because you know, and when I was living there, there were so many people that played. Like I had friends when I was ten years old that played on some team, and it was like, oh, our our, our practice is Thursday nights from nine o'clock till eleven o'clock at night. Because everybody played, so that was the only time they could get on the ice. And I'm thinking, like, screw that. I'm at home with, you know, Transformers and G.I. Joes and stuff. So I never played. Well, I think you made the right decision, really. You have all of your teeth, and each one of them is a marvel. Alfie just lost his first two teeth, uh, like, last week, really early at four and a half. But, yeah, he, he actually looks like a bit of a 1970s Detroit Red Wings goon. He's got this super curly blonde hair. And he's got two teeth on the front, and he just looks like some kind of what was his name? Uh, who was the the Detroit goon in the seventies? That's beyond my pay grade. Uh, yeah, something, something. But uh, I tell you what, you should get him a black badger hockey sweater. That would look great on the front. You know, <laughs> while, while he's going through this phase of, of gappy teeth, I love it. <laughs> so uh, before we go down the hockey hole, which uh, could take me and my enormous puck collection, which is surrounding me right now. Uh, oh, a lot nice. of a, a lot of hours to get through. Let's talk about what you're doing in addition to Black Badger. We're just going to tease this a little bit because we have a friend of yours coming on the show soon. But I want you to just drop us some little notes. What's coming up? I've uh, I've fallen in love. I've, I've hooked up with a a tiny, insane little brand out of out of Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, this is a brand called Arcanaut. Arcanaut watches and when their first watch came out about a year or so maybe even two years ago I I did a bunch of design consulting uh, on the first model uh, just as far as the loom goes and sort of helped me develop a bunch of stuff for it and then when it came time for the second model to come out it was we wanted to do more and more and then they basically came back to me and said well look it's actually a lot cleaner of a structure if instead of constantly sort of bringing you in like is this a collab is it a co-branded collab why don't we just bring you in as a part owner so i'm co-owner of the brand and uh it's just dead cool like these guys are danish people are just cool i don't know that they just have this fantastic uh don't give an f kind of kind of mentality for things they're not trying to impress anybody they're they're going out of their way not to try and be swiss um, nothing against anybody in Switzerland, but you know, there's a lot of new brands that come up that are using terms like Maison and they're trying to be so very Euro Valley kind of thing, but just no, 
we're just going in a completely different direction with this. And I will let the illustrious Anders Brandt, who is co-founder and chief designer, um, I'll let him sort of wave the flag on that because I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to be getting it wrong. Cool. I am very much looking forward to getting Anders on the show. Um, it's a brand which anyone that's got a passion for design would probably want to take a look at. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out of Arcanaut and now with you aligned officially as a co-owner. Cool, cool sort of. Sure. And I, stage, I, right? think, I think technically I'm creative director, but who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Yeah, the, uh, the, the real story is the product and, uh, you know, the, the relationship you guys have. And we'll dig into that on the next show. So we'll wrap this one up now. I'll let you go back to freezing your backside off in Sweden. It was minus 14 here this morning. And we're, like, we're right on the water. This sucks. This sucks. Send me a mojito and a, you know, with a flamingo on it or something. I am just dying in this weather. I can imagine. I feel for you, man. I appreciate you taking the time to get on the phone and uh, and talk to us again. As always, it is a massive pleasure, and uh, we will speak to you soon. So get warm, uh, find yourself a mojito, keep it out of uh, keep it out of your son's reach. Thanks again. <laughs>